Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. Her grace, you know, her, her stoicism, her fortitude and love was something that we're still benefiting from. The legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. It's Monday, January 16th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, Walgreens CFO says the company, quote, cried too much about a supposed wave of retail theft last year. And one artist's answer to the organizational challenges of living with ADHD, the anti-planner. But first, today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And people in the Northeast are able to celebrate his legacy at a new monument in the Boston Common. The Embrace is a 22-foot-tall sculpture made of bronze. It pays tribute to MLK and Coretta Scott King, who met in Boston. Brooklyn artist Hank Willis Thomas says he based it on a photograph of the two hugging. And his piece is just that, arms entwined in a giant hug. Producer Emiko Tamagawa and Robin Young took a tour of the work just before it was unveiled to the public with artist Hank Willis-Thomas. Here's Robin. We've been walking along talking, and I just looked up, and I realized, you know, there it is. It sneaks up on you. Yeah. Can you describe what we're seeing? From this angle, we're seeing three arms embracing. We're looking at the backs of hands facing us. I see a wedding ring on one. I see the buttons on the jacket that, that are, it's probably... Dr. King's jacket. Yes. Can we go underneath yeah, it? Yeah, let's see, go yeah. around the side. You can see. Uh, so this, yeah, this picture that inspired the sculpture is was taken in 1964 when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, and I noticed the glee on his face, embracing her, and the pride on her face. But also, I saw how her body was upholding his. So here, you see, like the weight of the sculpture, the weight of his arms are on her shoulders. And I thought that that was a really powerful metaphor for their relationship and her role in history as carrying on his legacy after he was assassinated. Well, talk to me about that because you, how old were you when he was assassinated? I was not born. It was eight years before I was born. Right. So talk about what she meant to you. Yeah, since Dr. King was not alive when I was alive, my connection to, to the civil rights movement and their family was primarily through Coretta Scott King and her work. And you know, I remember in 1986 when I was 10 years old when his birthday became a, a national holiday and she was the person who was really pushing that effort. She was the face, the beautiful, stoic face that we saw mm-hmm. at the funeral through very trying times after he died. Yeah, and also being the inspiration for so many people and carrying on the responsibility of creative nonviolence as a form of addressing deeply entrenched issues. And so her grace, you know, her, her stoicism, her fortitude and love was something that we're still benefiting from. Can we walk around? Because we're yeah. starting to see her arms emerging on the other yeah, side. see the sun. So this is a unique sculpture because really there's no front, there's no back. There's no top or no bottom. And so as you see her hands really like holding up, the, holding the weight, you know, and then we can walk inside. And I'm curious to hear what you think as you walk inside and look up. 
it's very powerful. Thank you. I just look up and I see the heavens through their embrace. So what I like to point out is that we're in this moment where we're standing, we're like in the heart of their embrace. And I like to imagine feeling that love and not just the love of the kings, but the love of all the people who have hugged and held us. Yeah, we're looking up. We're in the middle of all four arms. I'm looking to my right is her bare arm, her bare brown arm with what looks like maybe a pearl bracelet on it. But when we look up in the middle, it's pure sky. It's the heavens. What do you hope happens here in this space? Well, someone pointed out that this might be a site for people to get engaged, or this will be a site. I, I, I thought of that when I saw the press release saying that you'd been chosen from all the applicants, and that they hoped that this would become a place of engagement. And I thought, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm bended knee. Yeah, exactly. You know, I can't wait to find out who's first. Yeah, but it's just, there's like this kind of interlocking that happens that also is a metaphor for society, right? That, you know, we are, as a community called to embrace our neighbors and to like go through this kind of weaving of ourselves into the society that we're a part of. Well, I just have to say you've moved now and now we're over we're, we're by an, a crooked arm. Yeah and there's like another opening where light comes through. I, I th- the piece is an invitation to engage. It's a call to action. It's a call to come into it. So many of the monuments that we see we're looking up at someone else on a pedestal that we'll never be able to get close to and this is a piece that literally you are inside of and you know you are i do touch it every every time i go inside it's I see that your yeah. hands you know all over this piece and that's also a part of the work you're touching it now love is powerful he spoke of love they met here and fell in love here in yeah. boston there's pictures of them here you know in this park and they shared moments here and so it's also powerful to know that like just over here 1965 is where he led a march uh, for civil rights at the Parkman Banshell. His voice carried over this way. And so there's something to me that's magical about knowing that this is a place that played a significant role in their lives as well. By the way, we just came under the arms. <laughs> we came under the arms and now we're coming around to another angle. And, and someone, so when you make a piece like this, you never really, you don't know it until you see it, really, because it's so much bigger. But, you know, a lot of people look at this angle and oh. they see a heart. Oh, this, so we're, we're by uh, Dr. King's elbow, which is on the ground, and then his arm goes up in the V to his shoulder and then to his hand, and he's clasping her shoulder, h- her shoulder but it does look like a heart. Yeah, and so that's just one of those elements that's been, was in the, in the piece without me even knowing it. But there was also a lot of hate in this city. I'm thinking of the, the man who was attacked right near here. Somebody wielding an American flag, a black man Ted attacked Landsmark. by yeah. Ted Landsmark. Well, this is part of the city's history. What we choose to celebrate or focus on is as important as what actually happened, right? So that's where I think this is a new calling for responsibility to telling different elements of history, which it isn't to dismiss the horrors but to recognize that as human beings we have a negativity bias and sometimes we need to be reminded so we don't get trapped in our negativity. Um, We're standing on what's been called a quilt um, with names. What are these names that we're seeing? These are tributes to 65 heroes of past and some present of civil rights in the city of Boston because Embrace Boston and Mass Design, who I worked on with this 
piece really wanted to make sure that while we celebrate the kings, that we honor the people whose shoulders they stood on and actually carried on their legacy. So right see. now we're next to a plaque of Reverend James Reeve, who was assassinated during the Selma to Montgomery March in 1965, who was a Unitarian reverend at the church that's right at the edge of the park. And so, yeah, just recognizing that as we, where we happen to stand. Quite something. And you mentioned the Selma March. I think of that, too. They always had arms locked. Mm, yeah, I think there's something about the interlocking of arms, these knots that we, we create with our bodies that is super important to highlight. That's something that I've been paying more and more attention to after I actually decided to design this sculpture, that there are people who recognize symbolically the importance of interlocking our bodies for solidarity. Talk about how it looks. Most of the statues, and there's a ton of them around Boston, are white. <laughs> the statues themselves are white. But this is a beautiful brown. In fact, I can't help but notice when you stand next to it, Yeah, it's your skin. Yeah. Well, you're the first person to point that out. Yeah, it's the bronze arms of love. Um, and I think, you know, bronze has been used in many ways as in art history and throughout uh, the legacy of monuments. But there are rarely bronze monuments to bronze heroes of nonviolence that, that are so monumental, you know. And so I'm excited for that symbolism to be a part of the work. And it is um, a feat. This is one of the largest bronze sculptures in the country. Did you have hands-on in creating it? A lot of people had hands-on in creating it. There were hundreds of people um, who really came together to put this together, not only funders, but city agencies, city workers, paper pushers, but also Walla Walla Foundry, which is in Washington State, had, I think, up about 100 different people working on this at different phases. Well, I'm just wondering if they and you feel like you are touching Dr. King and Coretta King. I hope that everyone who comes inside the embrace feels like they are touching Mrs. and uh, Dr. King's spirit and their legacy. Hank Willis Thomas's sculpture, The Embrace, is open to the public now in Boston Common. We've got pictures of the piece at hereandnow.org. Coming up, Scott Tong looks into last year's wave of retail theft that might not have been a wave at all. Stick around. Last year, the drugstore Walgreens, along with Target and Walmart, warned that theft was increasing, and they beefed up security to stop it. But here's the thing. Reporters looked for evidence, found a little bit of it, didn't find too much. And a year later, a top executive at Walgreens said that the warnings were overblown, his word. Reporter Rachel Swan is covering this for the San Francisco Chronicle, and she's on the line now. Rachel, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So last year, retailers painted this picture of large-scale theft at their stores. But now, let's take a listen to Walgreens Chief Financial Officer James Kehoe. Maybe we cried too much last year. We've put in incremental security in the stores in the first quarter. Probably we, we put in too much, and we might step back a little bit from that. We're putting in more law enforcement as opposed to security companies. The security companies are proven to be largely ineffective. So, Rachel, what does he mean by we cried too much last year? Is he suggesting 
Walgreens overstated how much theft was happening? That definitely seems to be the suggestion here. I mean, the other possibility is that they correctly stated how much retail theft they were suffering, and then they just came up with some amazing security solutions that immediately attenuated the problem. But the more likely scenario is that Walgreens jumped to conclusions and really placed the blame on retail theft when there could have been myriad other factors causing them to lose business. Because they lost business and they closed several stores and they blamed or they seemed to blame it on theft. Is that what happened? Or is that what they said? Well, yes. We know that when Walgreens was closing a bunch of stores in 2021 and 2022, they cited the primary reason as retail theft, which a lot of people found a little perplexing since there's Mm -hmm. many other reasons for drugstores to be losing business. Now, are we talking about taking an item or two and sticking them in your bag, or are we talking about kind of large-scale organized criminals doing kind of a raid on a store? What are we talking about here? You know, that's a very good question. What started happening in 2021 and 2022 was there were a lot of videos that would quickly go viral of thefts at Walgreens and other drugstores. And in a lot of cases, these videos really showed what I would consider to be ordinary shoplifting. Someone swiping items from store shelves and putting them in a bag or a pocket When we say organized retail theft, which is the thing that really often raises hackles, that's more referring to something that is organized, possibly even a ring targeting specific stores, driving up in cars and all swarming in at the same time and sort of overwhelming a business and then fleeing and then fencing the merchandise. So that's something that's a lot more coordinated and calculating. And it's important to distinguish between those two things. But it doesn't seem like there was much of that distinction being made in the discussion of Walgreens. Yeah. And I imagine on social media, right, one of these kind of apparent large-scale things is what's going to go viral, whether that represents reality or not. You know, your team looked into what the San Francisco Police Department found as they looked into these statements from Walgreens. What did they find and what did your reporting find? We looked at police department reports between 2018 and 2021 and found they just didn't support Walgreens' claims. We found that at the time there were five stores shuttering in San Francisco in various locations. And among the five stores, they reported an average of two theft incidents a month, which didn't seem to be enough to really be the rationale for a whole store to close. However, spokespeople for Walgreens really insisted that this was the reason they had to close stores. And finally, for the Walgreens stores in the San Francisco area that are open, what do they look like now? I mean, the company hired a lot of private security. Do we still see that at stores? Do we still see a lot of items locked up? Yeah. I mean, in my observation, we see a lot of items behind glass in stores, you know, everyday items. I've even seen photos of cabinets of merchandise that are chained up and locked. In the past few years, we've seen a lot of private security at stores. Um, Now what we're seeing more often is 
not just drugstores, but many retailers, you know, clothing stores, apparel stores, relying more on hired law enforcement, hired police officers to do their security. That is reporter Rachel Swan of the San Francisco Chronicle. Rachel, thanks for the time. Thank you so much for your time. After the break, Deepa Fernandez speaks with artist Danny Donovan, who got fed up with traditional planners that didn't suit her lifestyle or her ADHD. Now, when she feels disorganized, she turns to what she calls the anti-planner. That's after the break. A common New Year's resolution is to get organized. But research shows that if you're like most Americans, you may drop that idea by the end of, well, this month. Neurodiverse artist Danny Donovan can relate. She's bought planners to help her feel less overwhelmed, only to throw them out weeks later. She's popular on TikTok as she shares candidly how having attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, impacts her. For example, school. I was the kid who literally always sat in the front row who was constantly just nodding along with everything the teacher said and like engaging in class more than anyone else. Because if I didn't, I would zone out and doodle and do homework for other classes. One approach that has worked to turn herself around and be more productive is throwing out the traditional idea of a calendar and a schedule with dates and times. And she's found that even those who haven't been diagnosed can relate to her way of coping. Her activity book for procrastinators is called The Anti-Planner, How to Get Stuff Done When You Don't Feel Like It. She first published it last year and is planning to release more copies this spring. She joins us now. Danny, welcome to Here and Now. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I love your book and I want to talk about that. But first, I want to ask you about your road to being such an open and and also hugely popular advocate for people with ADHD. Because we often hear about ADHD in kids, but your TikToks and now your book really speaks to adults. Your your audience seems to be adults. I want to ask you why. I feel like most of the content that I had seen about ADHD in the past had always been focused on, you know, parents with kids with ADHD on what felt like, how do I fix my kid? Like that really Mm. kind of felt like the vibe of the things I was seeing and hearing. And I didn't feel like I was seen. And so being able to create content that helped express myself was first off just incredibly cathartic. But once I started to see the comments and the community that was being built around feeling like someone was finally talking to them um, when we'd been invisible and felt like we shouldn't talk about this, we're just making excuses, you know, nobody wants to hear it. And so it's just been really great to feel like we're able to talk about the specific challenges adults face versus, you know, kids in school. Danny, when were you diagnosed with ADHD? Um, I was diagnosed my freshman year of college, so I think I was 19. I went in to talk to someone about depression, and the psychiatrist actually was a woman with ADHD, and she heard how fast I was talking and changing topics and stuff, and she goes, has anyone talked to you about ADHD before? (laughs) So um, I didn't go in seeking a diagnosis, but um, I was really, really grateful that she caught it. Yeah. Is it unusual to be diagnosed as an adult? Not anymore. (laughs) But a lot of people, especially women, do get missed because they have 
either don't have like noticeable symptoms in the same way that like maybe a hyperactive young boy has visibly disruptive symptoms. But as an adult, you'd find that a lot of people have developed coping mechanisms, whether they work well or not. So it can be more difficult to spot, but I think with the awareness that's happening with social media, um, it's becoming more prevalent for people to advocate on their own behalf. So I want to go on to your planner. And I have to say it kind of blew my mind when I received it. Uh, Our producer, Ashley, described it to me as a big warm hug from a dear friend who helps you to get up from your puddle and be your best self. And I have to say, I totally agree. I found it really cathartic from your very opening page, which states your worth is not measured in productivity. And then you have a page where you lay out that there's no such thing as a a perfect student or a perfect parent or a perfect partner or like, like you blow the lid on perfectionism. There's so much in here. And you call it an anti-planner. Why? And, and who is this for? Well, I started off making this just for me, (laughs) Uh, but I call it the anti-planner because for so long when we struggle to be productive, the advice we're given is just get a planner. But the issue is, is that planners are templates, right? That you do day in and day out. But if you write to do's on it, and you don't do those to-dos, you know, maybe you copy them over to the next day, but like the planner doesn't help you get those things done. It's just a place to write, you know, stuff down. And so ultimately I got kind of tired of wasting money on things I stopped using after two weeks. And so instead of finding this one magic system chasing that unicorn, instead finding a way to compile uh, over a hundred different strategies so that when one of them gets boring, I can just hop to another one. <laughs> mm. I mean, there are so many strategies in here. So let's dive in quickly. You divide your planner into sections. So there's like stuck, overwhelmed, unmotivated. Okay, those are just a few. Um, and you've got really concrete activities to help. I love in stuck how you tell us what it looks like. Chronic procrastination, feeling paralyzed, inability to make decisions, lack of follow through. And I think there may be many people who can relate to this. It's it's part kind of a diagnosis of what it might be, but then there's concrete activities. How do we stop being stuck? So for me, stuck, getting over that kind of mental roadblock, right, really comes down to recognizing that the reason you're avoiding stuff is because you're trying to avoid pain and discomfort and negative emotions, right? It's not you as a person and, you know, saying something about you being like lazy if you know what you need to do but can't get yourself to do it. But figuring out how to initiate that action by addressing the emotions behind it. So for stuck, right, there's different things that might be holding you back. Maybe you can't decide which option to pursue. Maybe you can't focus long enough on something and you're distracted. Or maybe you just want to do such a good job and you don't want to start unless the conditions are perfect. So understanding that first can really help you determine you know, what can actually help you accomplish your goal moving forward. Also, you point out visualizing task completion and also rewarding oneself. It feels like as adults, you know, this we should be beyond this. Like that's what we do with children to try and motivate them. But your book makes it seem so enticing. I love it. That's one of my favorite activities is um, one in the unmotivated section called treat yourself. And so, you know, you've got this, here's, 
the things I want to get done and here's how I'm going to reward myself when I'm done. Because I do think a lot of us grow up with, you know, getting a sticker on a chart or something when we accomplish those little goals. But for me, you know, we've got little booster packs from Magic the Gathering. My husband and I will put them on the fridge with a post-it note that says, you know, clean out the storage closet. And whoever does that thing first gets the, you know, to open the pack. And it just brings back all these like memories of, you know, like having trading cards and and doing stuff, but more than anything, motivating us, not just to get a little reward at the end, but sort of compete in a way of like, well, I I don't want him to have it. I want it first. (laughs) Yeah. Just finally, do you feel like this is helping to bring more understanding in in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities of, of adults with ADHD? I hope so. Yeah. Right. The the whole element of self-compassion is really prevalent throughout this book of being able to learn to forgive yourself and not place so much blame um, and you know guilt and shame. But I think that helping other people understand that we're struggling, why we're struggling, and what type of help we can actually ask for and get permission to feel like we can ask for um, is going to help everybody down the line. Danny Donovan is a neurodiverse artist with ADHD. She's also the creator of the Anti-Planner, How to Get Stuff Done When You Don't Feel Like It. Danny, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been great. I've said before that producers are behind everything you hear on this show and our radio program. Well, there's at least one engineer behind everything, too. And after we taped that conversation that you just heard, engineer Caleb Green told us about his own experience with ADHD and why Danny Donovan's story resonated with him. Her explanation of, like, her experience definitely gave a lot of visibility to what it's like to be an adult with ADHD. It's not just like you're a hyper kid, you know? It's it's different than that. It's a lot more to do with organizational skills and uh, being overwhelmed. That can lead to a lot of other problems like anxiety and depression because when you're constantly fighting small tasks during the day, things like doing the dishes, doing the laundry, like cleaning up the house, I find myself like in the middle of any of those tasks, I will get sidetracked for a half hour doing some other like household tasks, for example. In life, I find that like a lot of my experience has been starting projects, starting lots of different projects and finishing none of them. I guess I get immediately distracted by either something else in life, something else in my day. It makes you feel like you can't keep track of anything and that you're not moving forward on the things that you want to do. Like it it, it helps to hear someone else talk about like their coping mechanisms with it because it makes you feel like there's hope to kind of like achieve your aspirational goals while dealing with these kind of like worrying thoughts all the time where you're like constantly being pulled away by your own mind. It's a unique circumstance as an adult, I think, that needs some more recognition and understanding. And I'm glad that it's being talked about more. Engineer Caleb Green, one of the people who brings you this show and here and now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Emiko Tamagawa, Thomas Daniellian, and Ashley Locke. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Munt, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. 